Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to Nomads Past and Present, a podcast about nomadism and nomadic peoples around the world and throughout history. I'm your host, Maggie Freeman, and my guest today is Dr. Kenny Linden. Kenny is an environmental and animal historian of Mongolia and Inner Asia. He received his PhD from Indiana University's Central Eurasian Studies Department in 2022, where his dissertation was on the transformation of livestock herding in socialist Mongolia. His next project is on the history of climatic disasters in Mongolia and Inner Asia. And Kenny's joining me today to discuss a topic that bridges his academic interests in Mongolian history with pop culture, namely the Disney Plus Star Wars prequel series Andor and its real-world parallels to pastoralism and the treatment of pastoralists in Central and East Asia by state authorities. So thank you so much, Kenny, for joining me. You're very welcome, and thank you for inviting me. Uh, I'm very excited to uh, talk about this today. So... To start off, let's talk about Andor, or hopefully you can tell me about Andor, although I have seen the show, but maybe you could give listeners who might not have seen it some context as to what the show is, what's its place in the Star Wars universe, what's the kind of larger context, big picture of the show Andor? Yeah, so it's a prequel to the movie Rogue One, which was the second Disney released Star Wars film. Rogue One takes place just before A New Hope, the original uh, Star Wars film, and revolves around uh, uh, a number of rebel uh, agents and spies stealing the Death Star plans. The main rebel agent, sort of the co-lead of the movie, is named Cassian Andor, played by Diego Luna, And Andor is a prequel. Uh, The first season takes place five years before Rogue One. Um, And it shows how he goes from sort of, there's flashbacks to him as a child, but mostly how he goes from someone who is opposed, does not like the Empire, but just tries to scrape on by to someone who is an active agent of the rebellion who is fighting with every fiber of his being against the empire. And um, within that, there's a center, um, uh, there's a three episode arc that revolves around the planet Aldani, in which um, they go into great detail discussing the herding lifestyle of the people there and how the empire has oppressed and disrupted their lifestyle. And uh, it is definitely a conscious reflection of a number of real-life people's treatment by uh, states around the world, including but certainly not limited to inner Asia. Um, I mean, they, they, they film in the Scottish Highlands, and the Scottish Highlanders were actually treated the same way. Um, so arguably those are the, the, but we can compare it to Native Americans, um, various Middle Eastern and African pastoralists, um, and inter-Asian um, herders as well, including various Mongolian peoples. Mm-hmm. And so what are some of the sort of aspects of 
how Aldani is depicted that where we can identify these parallels. Yeah, so it's really interesting. So um, Andor arrives and is sort of integrated in with a cell of non-natives, but who had been living in Aldani uh, for a while, sort of disguised as locals. And they um, sort of give him a rundown of the history and place. Uh, um, So more or less, they were the Dani people. um, I checked this. I, I wasn't sure if the people were called Aldani or Dani, but according to StarWars.com, they're called Dani. So I feel uh, sort of uh, I did uh, my research there, and they um, they uh, lived in highlands, herding various livestock, including Dre, uh, which uh, we see in the um, show, which are six horned sheep played by a four horned sheep almost certainly a hebridean um hebridean sorry hebridean uh uh sheep breed which is in scotland that often have four horns so they took a four horned sheep and just connected two more horns on them uh and uh they this seems to be their main uh, form of um, sort of uh, livestock. But when the empire came in, they relocated all of the Donny people off out of their pasture lands into the lowlands and stopped their pastoral life uh, style and uh, turned them into workers um, I'm guessing farmers, but they don't say that specifically, but mostly uh, so they talk about industrial laborers. And the empire uh, has plans to further disrupt their life in order to create a military, uh, expand a military base. Um, a key feature of the Donny uh, lifestyle is there a and as well as a major plot point in this three episode arc of Andor is their religion. Um, they worship uh, a, a um, or they celebrate a every four year occurrence called the um, Eye of Aldani, um, where, where a, a number of um, uh, it's a gorgeous sort of, uh, astral event where the various um, uh, sort of colorful um, uh, things occur and it's in the highlands and after they were um, uh, kicked out the Aldani people the Dani people make a pilgrimage from their new homes in the lowlands to the um, highlands and the empire has been making it harder and harder for the people to do so by both um, various rules and laws, as well as making, they say they made um, uh, rest centers so people could just like stop uh, halfway through the journey. Um, And we see, uh, and this is strongly paralleled by the oppression of various local peoples 
um, religions that we see, whether it's the Native Americans and the oppression of their ghost dance, for example, in the 19th century, um, in Inner Asia, most of the Inner Asian nomads um, lived under a socialist a state socialist government, which was officially atheistic um, and uh, oppressed their uh, religious beliefs. Um, Eventually they were allowed to sort of kind of um, practice an official version of their beliefs, whether usually either Islam, if we're talking about Central Asia, Kazakhs, Kyrgyz, or uh, Tibetan-style Buddhism, if we're talking about Buryats, Mongolians, and Inner Mongolians, um, uh, they were allowed to practice an official approved version, similar to the official um, allowing of the Dani people to still see the eye without, but heavily um, constrained. And it even shows how the, uh, there is a ritual exchange of uh, Dre um, pelts between the empire and the Dani as a form of rent, where the Dani officially rent the land to the empire. And we, um, many uh, pastoral and hunting peoples, had their um, economic uh, activities relating to imperial powers through the uh, exchange of and presenting of pelts. We can see this in the uh, when the Russians invaded Siberia, they sort of took over the previous Mongol imperial system where various hunting peoples had to give pelts. Uh, Pelts were a major form of um, trade in early uh, American colonization where uh, beaver pelts in particular in the north um, in the northern sort of forest areas among the Iroquois uh, um, Algonquin and other uh, peoples uh, were a major form of um, uh, trade and um, in the socialist era uh, which is in Mongolia which is where I do my research uh, the Mongolian government exported a huge number of livestock goods as well as wild animal furs to the Soviet Union um, one of my dissertation topics as well as my first published article was about wolf hunting and uh, wolves are hunted for two reasons. One, to protect livestock, because they like to eat cheap. And two, because you can turn their pelts into um, hats and robes and stuff like that. Um, And uh, so the state socialist government had uh, annual plans of how many each province and each uh, district, how many wolves they were supposed to kill, as well as how many sheep were supposed to be born, how many sheep were supposed to be killed, how many uh, kilograms of meat. And then from that, many of these were exported to the Soviet Union and the broader socialist world. Um, Then um, we see, it's really interesting uh, in Andor, how a number of indigenous peoples, both Cassian as a child, as well as the Donnie people speak a non, uh, well, 
English, but in Star Wars canon, it's called basic. Uh, and, and that is not subtitled. So mm. they, they speak. Uh, um, I have not seen what real world language the Donnie language is based off of. Star Wars.com said that uh, Cassian's people's language was based on Spanish, Portuguese, mm. and Magyar, or Hungarian. Okay. So it's an interesting melding there. And actually, yeah. uh, the earliest connection, there's been a number of connections with Mongolia to Star Wars over the years. The earliest one, I would argue, is in Return of the Jedi, where uh, Ben Burt, the sound designer, took, uh, in order to make uh, the language of the Ewoks, he took the recording of 10 Tib- Tibetans and one Kalmuk Mongolian, and sort of mixed it up, and just sort of had them talk, uh, and mixed and melded their um, what they said along with like baby noises and a couple of other things. Um, he said he wanted a primitive dialect, which of course is highly problematic. Uh, uh, it was 1983, but that doesn't mean that it's cool. But th- that's in context of. George Lucas wanting to represent the Ewoks as sort of the Vietnamese defeating the American empire. The, um, the Ewoks technologically primitive, again, problematic, but there it is. Uh, people who defeated the galactic empire. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and then over the years, there's been other uh, Mongolian sort of references with um, Padme Amidala, uh, Queen Padme Amidala in uh, the um, episode one Phantom Menace, her main dress, the red dress with uh, sort of horned hair, is identical to uh, noble women's Hulk Mongolian or independent Mongolian uh, noble women's dresses. If you Google Mongolian noble woman, you will see an identical um, dress to what. Padme Amidala wears, and most recently in the video game Jedi Fallen or- Jedi Knight, no Jedi Fallen Order, yes, it opens with a song by the Mongolian rock band The Who, H U, um, and uh, they made they were commissioned by uh, the video game company to make a to write a song and make up a language that's very similar to Mongolian but not Mongolian. <laughs> Uh, and so they sort of made up their own language, made this song that's like used uh, diegetically, I believe is the term. Like it starts with the main character listening to this rock song within the mm-hmm. universe uh, that is made by this famous internationally renowned Mongolian band. So over the years, there's been a number of sort of uh, connections, but I, I would argue that the most sort of meaningful can be found in Andor. Hmm. It's interesting that you bring up Padme Amidala's dress because I, when I was watching Andor, I was thinking that the clothing of the Dani to me looked quite kind of Central Asian. I don't know enough to really be able to locate it anywhere specifically, but do you think that that was a kind of intentional visual reference as well? I, I definitely do. There's a number of sort of Central Asian local outfits. The Soviet system 
which was sort of emulate formed the basis for first the people's for first the Mongolian People's Republic, which was the second socialist country in the world, and then uh, the People's Republic of China, and then various other socialist systems. They uh, socialist states. They required a detailed. They created based on Stalin's writings a nationality policy, where. The idea was you, uh, each nationality needed to have its own language, uh, culture. You produce uh, socialist um, programs uh, in that language. You have local cadres and leaders from that culture. And eventually you raise that culture high enough that they no longer are that specific nationality, but are now a shared socialist um, sort of, sometimes it's called homo sovieticus. And in their uh, holdings in Central Asia, the Soviet had to apply this same nationality policy. Now, in the real world, it was not as easy as, ah, this person is this ethnicity, this person is this ethnicity. Because, you know, you you go to a remote area and you ask, who are you? And it's like, I'm from this area. Are you Kazakh or Kyrgyz? And it's like, I don't know. You know, like, it's like, what do you mean? I'm from, I'm a Karakalpakistani. Uh, kind of deal or or i'm from the this valley um so one of the ways that they distinguish between what is a kazakh what is a kyrgyz what is a tajik what is a uzbek is both based on language but also based on hats and dress so kyrgyz wear this kind of hat and kazakhs wear this kind of hat uh uzbeks and tajiks despite living right next to each other one of them speaks more Turkic, the other one speaks more uh, Persian uh, language. Uh, Turkmen wear big furry hats, you know, like, um, uh, and I would, I definitely thought while watching Andor that while there, there was not one, it was not a one-to-one like the way that Padme was, that is a Mongolian noblewoman's dress, the sort of general uh, sort of crossed over coat with big furry hat is very Central Asian. Um, mm-hmm. if you, especially if you look, uh, Turkmen robes are, are very, um, so just long robes that are cut um, sort of straight down the middle with big so, uh, sheepskin hats um, are, are very similar to uh, some of the clothes that the that Andor and his uh, compatriots wear to fit in among the Donny, so I would definitely i I would definitely say that the costume designers looked around and saw some Central Asian peoples as uh, inspirations. Mm-hmm. And so you said earlier that you. Um, you described, you know, these parallels between the Dani and real nomadic peoples as a conscious reflection of real life. So have, have you done some research into this? You know, are there, 
interviews with, you know, the creators of the show that suggest that they were looking to real world kind of events and figures and visuals and things like that to create the people of, of Aldani? So that's a great question. So I have yet to find, and, and this was inspired by, uh, I and I just got accepted to a conference on May uh, 4th, uh, of course. Uh, <laughs> a, a, uh, so it is called Realizing Resistance 3, the Expanding Universe Conference. It is a Star Wars co- academic conference, and mm. I decided to uh, submit it uh, there. Um, I'm still working on it and still doing research. However, Tony Gilroy, the showrunner and writer, has talked about a number of other real-world inspirations. He has ex- compared as a whole the rebellion to various real-life resistance movements and has said, this is what we are doing. He, he is not blunt about the idea that uh, Andor is about resisting oppressive imperial governments. And that includes uh, not just sort of like the British Empire, despite the fact that the the the, the Galactic Empire usually has British accents, um, mm-hmm. but also you know uh, things like authoritarianism in America and and, and so forth, um, and some sort of conservative types who claim to be Star Wars fans have decried this as woke or bad but George Lucas has from the very beginning of Star Wars consciously modeled uh, it after the real world and said like you know I was inspired by Richard Nixon when I made the Galactic Empire I was inspired by the Vietnam War when I I made the rebellion um, against the Empire the the Ewok uh, example and so forth Mm -hmm. Um, so while I have not found a quote confirming that the, Aldon, that the Donnie people are one-to-one like the others. The fact that it is, well, the fact that they're filming in Scotland in a place with the history of displaced Highland herders by an empire, and there are, as you say, they're wearing similar Central Asian outfits. Um, the, it is very, uh, I believe... Um, and I, you know, I'm staking my academic uh, argument on it that this is a conscious uh, reflection of the real world. Um, if only because there are so many examples of it that even if it's not like, oh, this is just like Mongolia, it's like, well, it's just like Native Americans, it's just like uh, um, the, the Scots and any uh, the Bedouins and so forth. Um, um, uh, one one uh, further parallel that I thought of was in the second episode of the arc, um, which is the, um, I believe, the fifth episode overall in Andor, when um, uh, Cassian is getting used to this group, the sort of young, idealistic uh intellectual uh, member of the uh, rebel group, Nemec, uh, offers him a drink of Dre, uh, these goats, milk, and said, uh, you know, 
it has all the nutrition you need, but it may make you question your existence. And Cassian takes a drink and immediately is like, oh, this is terrible. And then he spills it out. But by the next episode, when he's offered the drink, he happily takes it. I have seen this exact pattern and reaction in Mongolia when people react to fermented mare's milk. Mm-hmm. Fermented mare's milk is a staple of Mongolian um, uh, and broader inter-Asian uh, diet. Um, and numerous foreigners react extremely rudely <laughs> when offered sort of the national drink almost um, I, I once went to a local uh, Nadam which is a, the sort of summer uh, game holiday um, to, a, a, to a district my friends and I went in order to offset the cost we brought along two uh, Italian strangers in order to so make them pay for part of the gas um, and my friend and I were like, oh, we got to get some uh, Arik, which is fermented mare's milk. Uh, in Turkic, it's kumuz. Um, and uh, we were looking around and we met a Mongolian who studied in Germany, who's fluent in English. And he was like, oh, yeah, let me hook you up. Come on. And he, he brought us to the big, like, sort of official tent and gave us all uh, a drink. And... Um, Fermented mare's milk is definitely an acquired taste. Um, I do not go out and drink it for fun, but it's not. But all you need to do, even if you hate it, is take a sip and go, "Thank you." Right? You don't need to like go. You don't need to. That's all you need, and that is polite. These people that we brought along, they were like, oh, they took a sip and were like, oh, this is so disgusting. It's like baby vomit. And again, we just established that this guy speaks English. And even the people who don't speak English can know when someone's going, ah, blah, blah. Yeah, and, the universal and, language of disgust. Right, exactly. <laughs> it, it's a universal language. Um, and indeed, there, there's a um, famous... Um, Soviet Mongolian studies professor, uh, or he wasn't a professor, Mongolist, in the 1930s wrote a guide, like, I, I think it was published in Pravda, sort of like 10 things for Russians who are going to Mongolia to know. And one of them was be respectful about their food. Don't read don't uh, react with disgust because they can understand you. Uh, and uh, think of how you would feel if some foreigner came to your grandma's house and reacted with disgust to her, her food. Um, and the fact that that is still a major part of it. And I, I don't think that necessarily Tony Gilroy was thinking, ah, this is just like fermented bear's milk. Maybe he was, but either way it's, an experience that was like immediately is like, that's identical to one that I had. And the fact that Andor eventually like pretty much everyone who studies Mongolia uh, that I know eventually was like fine with drinking it and, you know, happy to drink it because yeah, it's the staple that is like uh, nutritious and only slightly, slightly alcoholic. Um, 
it's uh, it, it really resonated. Is there a similar uh, food item or drink um, in your uh, area of research? Oh, for sure. Yeah. I mean, especially so like in the Middle East among the Bedouin, there's a lot of just like, you know, slaughtering and uh, roasting of like whole goats and sheep and things like that. And that's like, especially that's like a festive celebratory thing, you know, and that's like a real honor. But like, of course, when you have guests, especially foreign guests, you know, that's like a thing that you would do is you kill a goat and roast it whole and then everyone like digs in and that's that's like an amazing thing you know and it's a real honor for foreigners from the west that can be a little off-putting so yeah definitely that's um that's an experience that i can relate it's definitely a universal thing i think it would have been interesting if we saw uh cassian interact with the donnie um, we don't see that, but but we still get a lot of their point of view um, of uh, of they, they interspersed with it's sort of like a heist. Um, we see a lot of uh, visions of or sort of um, the heist episode of uh, this arc while uh, the rebels are trying to steal this cache of money from the empire is constantly interspersed with the Donnie performing this ritual for the um, eye that is part of their religion. And this sort of like worship of a um, specific natural um, event or, or location is very similar to the local religion found in Mongolia and throughout Inner Asia. Um, in, uh, Mo- so Mongolians are Tibetan Buddhism, oh, t- t- Tibetan-style Buddhist, sorry, because um, like it's inaccurate to say they're Tibetan Buddhists, both because they're not Tibetan, but also most nowadays, most of their rites are read in a mix of Tibetan and Mongolian. But um, it's melded with uh, a strong... Um, importance of localities, especially things like mountains. And there are various religious rituals around mountains, um, the sky, and so forth. And there are offerings. There are these things called owos, um, or, uh, either spelled O-V-O-O, O-W-O-O, or O-B-O-O, depending on your religion. Um, but offerings are made to these um Places just like how the Donny burnt a um, a sheep uh, or sheep uh, pelt before their ritual. Um, so the, sort of the strong uh, religious element of geographic locations or genus loci, um, and, and the Islamic Central Asians also have similar um, practices. Uh, I'm just less familiar with them because that's not my own specialty but but um this sort these sort of uh practices will get uh outsiders of the same religion to claim like oh they're not really buddhist they're not really muslims uh or or like certain anthropologists or or religious studies people saying they're actually shamans and it's like well shamans had been exterminated from mongolia for hundreds of years before the socialist era um, 
and only after the end of socialism with religious freedom in Mongolia did shamans uh, start to redeclare themselves. Um, so to call Mongolian a sh- Mongolia a shamanistic country is just functionally inaccurate. Mm-hmm. But there are parallels and shared elements of shamanism and Buddhism when it comes to the reverence of certain geographical um, and natural um, sites. For example, I, I, um, I, uh, one time I was in Mongolia, it was a major drought, and this actually inspired me for my uh, research into climatic disasters because everyone was talking about it's a drought, which means that in the winter, it's going to be a dzud, which is um, a, uh, in Kazakh, it's zhut, and like old, old Turkish, it's like yud. Um, th- this is a uh, winter disaster that kills off a large number of livestock to, because they can't eat, they can't access the uh, grass underneath the snow, frozen snow usually. And a drought usually precedes one because I mean, the livestock are less fat because they had less to eat from the drought, so they're more likely to starve during the winter. Um, This was a topic of conversation often, as well as found often discussed in the socialist sources that I explored. So um, I realized, like, how important this was. But I also met a... uh, local government official one time while camping uh, by, by the Orkhan River, sort of the main, a main river in Mongolia. And he, he was like, oh, my friend, my friend and I are making this Owo sort of rock cairn, uh, um, sprinkling it with various uh, um, uh, fermented mare's milk and other dairy in order to address the river spirit to make it rain to alleviate the drought. So this is a sort of major ongoing, and it was just him and his friend and a shaman was coming nearby. Like this was not a major religious, I mean, it was a major religious, but it was not a major um, event. It was just like, we need to uh, address this uh, environmental problem um, which is, of course, becoming worse and worse due to climate change, as well as policies that include things like increased mining, which use up water and so forth, mm-hmm. um, farming as well. So I wanted to go back to something that you said earlier about it being a shame that we don't that in the show we don't see Cassian and or interacting with Vidani because you've clarified something for me that apparently I completely missed while I was watching the show, which is that I didn't realize that this rebel gang sort of that he teams up with weren't themselves Dottie that like completely went over my head. And so that's interesting to me because when I was watching it, I was seeing Cassian in that light as sort of like a Lawrence of Arabia type figure, like teaming up with this sort of indigenous, you know, nomadic people to fight the empire, you know, in this. So I was seeing like the Dani as like the Bedouin, you know, the empire is like the Ottoman empire, you know, I was sort of, I had that kind of storyline in the back of my head. And now I realize that I'm kind of mistaken, I guess, in drawing that parallel. But so what then do you make of the fact that there is this outside group of rebels that has embedded themselves in this kind of nomadic pastoralist 
society? Like, what does that kind of tell us about the history of nomad state relations and this universal perception of nomads as rebellious, peripheral, kind of threatening, you know, all of these kind of stereotypes that states tend to have towards nomads. Can we view that storyline more sort of in those terms, do you think? Yeah, that's a great point. Yeah, originally it's not clear and they never sort of say like, oh, we came here from, but once you, it's sort of revealed by each person telling their background, their story of, oh, I was in prison on this planet. I was a stormtrooper. Um, we find out that the leader of the cell is from Chandrilla and related to Mon Mothma. Um, and we don't know where her girlfriend is from, but we know that she hates the Empire as well and is presumably also off uh, from off-planet. Um, and uh, we also don't know where Nemec is from, but based on his accent and sort of um, uh, firebrand nature, I would also say he's off-planet. Um, so it is interesting that, you know, it, it there is a stereotype of nomads as these sort of constantly rebellious, constantly, like, violent people. And yet, um, within the socialist era in Mongolia, there was a strong sort of his, historiographical argument by socialist historians that, oh, the Qing Empire, which was the la- Manchu-ruled last empire of China. It's important to note that they were Manchu rather than Chinese themselves. But uh, And early on, they were closely aligned um, sort of culturally and linguistically and so forth with Mongolia. But at, centuries later, they... they and they supported colonizations of Mongolian lands by Chinese, especially in Inner Mongolia. And, you know, independent Mongolia declared independence, Outer Mongolia declared independence in 1911 because they saw what was happening in Inner Mongolia, saw various reforms uh, to settle people, to uh, sort of move uh, Mongolian remove Mongolian culture and said, we don't want to be that. We're, we're, we joined the Qing uh, voluntarily and we are voluntarily leaving, um, which is an interesting argument. But during the socialist period, various historians said, oh, we used to be great warriors. We had a great empire, but the Qing came in and they intentionally made us soft by introducing Tibetan style Buddhism, which talks about peace and all this kind of stuff. So, and I would argue that, so there's a stereotype of nomads as sort of like these boundless people who just wander all over. But there's been extensive um, research by people like Christopher Atwood and David Sneath um, who show that uh, this is. Um, Certainly not true in Mongolia, where since the Mongol Empire and probably before, people lived in bounded regions, um, ruled usually by a lord or prince. The commoners worked the livestock of that prince, or, or later on it also was, could have been a monastery, but, and they were not allowed to leave their region slash community. Um, uh, and uh, so, but there are other nomads 
who were who historical sources do seem to suggest were more violent. One of these were actually a certain group in Tibet, where people today often think in the West were like, "Oh, Tibetans are so peaceful," but um, Robert Ekval lived in. Uh, um, amongst uh, certain uh, nomads in Tibet. He's like, oh, they all have swords and they're all constantly wanting to fight each other. Uh, this sort of this idea that they're not, hashtag not all nomads are violent, uh, but there are some that are perceived as violent or were promoted as warriors by the empire. A sort of the similar, the, how the British empire designated certain ethnicities as like, the Sikhs are warriors, the, the Gurkha are warriors kind of deal. But the fact that Do- the Dani people themselves are not rebelling actively, um, as, as far as we see, we, we don't know what happened in the decade, uh, 15 years uh, before when the empire was formed. But if anything, ironically, it reminds me of how certain early Soviet sort of intellectuals and agitators would go to these regions, to Siberia, to Central Asia, um, embed themselves and say, hey, you know, Marxism is here. You guys got to turn on your nobles, your rich people, your religious leaders, especially. And this was understandably mixed the rebel's cell is all there to sort of as envisioned by the mastermind the idea is to spark a rebellion across the galaxy so this idea of non-local agitators coming in embedding themselves and saying like wake up and let's go is ironically very similar to the soviet strategy which later on led to forced sedentarization deportation, mass execution and starvation of various herders in Central Asia and Siberia. Um, Which is, again, one of those things where, like, history is very complicated and can't sort of... There's a reason why a lot of people historically were really on board with socialism and why other people were really against it and why there's often the case people were both for and against it, Uh, you know, mostly wanting a middle way that didn't involve murdering people Mm -hmm. uh, while also also wanting things like uh, equality and um, social and economic uh, reforms. and modernization science and and so forth. So it's also almost like how the early revolutionaries in in the Boston Tea Party dressed up as Native Americans. Mm -hmm. We don't know how much of this is based on sort of we need to just crack down on someone or they actually thought that that the Donnie did it. But we do see later on some of the Imperial Security Bureau saying we've detained hundreds of Donny and are cracking down on them. And Lucian, the leader of this sort of rebel cell, his goal is to make people suffer so much that they have to rebel, make the empire squeeze their fists so much that they have no choice but to wake up. Um, And this is a very... I would argue sort of um, revolution. This fits with a number of revolutionary models, including that of the Soviet Bolsheviks, um, Mm -hmm. who often uh, either co-opted, cooperated, or tried to 
um, instill these sort of rebellions in various non-Russian native regions. Um, and certainly the Mongolian um, revolutionary revolution was uh, of 1921 uh, was uh, homegrown, uh, led by Mongolians. But before they uh, kicked it all off, they went to Moscow, got Lenin's approval, and got uh, hundreds of Red Army soldiers on their side. Based on the fact that a white Russian, so sort of Tsarist Russian uh, soldier had occupied Mongolia. So the Red Army said, okay, you guys fight against the Chinese, we'll fight against the Russians, um, but you get your country in the end kind of deal. So there's this complicated sort of situation where uh, it can be very messy between like who is, what is the locals rebelling? What is the uh, sort of outsiders rebelling? Mm -hmm. And I wouldn't say that Andor shows that Donnie as passive. We see the leader, seemingly sort of a social and religious leader, who leads the Donny people to view this religious experience of the eye, being very dismissive and unhappy with the empire. But he's playing ball in order to allow his people to participate in this religious experience. And that's another form of resistance, I would argue, that is not necessarily it's not the same as armed but the fact that he is not sort of the fact that the empire is putting up all these roadblocks to stop his people from practicing religion and he's still going through anyway is a form of resistance unfortunately i don't think we'll go back to aldani and see what happened there but i i hope that there's a mention maybe that's hoping too much in a relatively uh realistic and somewhat dark show but uh, it is ultimately i would argue about hope yeah i think that's a really good point that you brought up about this other kind of somewhat common historical phenomenon of nomadic people sort of becoming these pawns between, you know, states and in sort of in-state struggles and between other state authorities. And in that sense, I think maybe, then maybe my Lawrence of Arabia yeah. comparison isn't that far off where it's the British kind of manipulating the Bedouin and fomenting rebellion among the Bedouin for their own sort of political purposes. Yeah. So yeah, there are a lot of other historical and geographical parallels that I think could be drawn here. Maybe just a final question. Uh, I'm just curious, are there other examples of kind of nomadic lifestyles in the Star Wars universe, you know, in other films, TV shows in the Star Wars universe? Because I I mean, that hadn't really, that question hadn't occurred to me until just now as we were talking. And I, you know, as I told you, I'm not a Star Wars lore expert, but in, I can kind of remember a few things in a few of the movies and other, you know, pieces of Star Wars media that I've seen where now I'm sort of thinking like, oh, yeah, maybe those people did live in this kind of way like these people did have that certain type of architecture like is this something that we've seen in other places in in the galaxy 
Yeah, um, the, and, and we see this in the first uh, film, uh, A New Hope, with the Sand People or right. the Tusker Raiders. Uh, they uh, ride on Banthas, which are um, that was played by a 22-year-old Asian elephant. And this elephant, they rented her from a, a circus in uh, Tunisia where they filmed and put a whole bunch of hair on this poor elephant. And uh, that was the Bantha. And over the years, we've got... And George Lucas has said, I don't have the source of the exact quote where he has it, but I know he said this was in, the sand people were inspired by Bedouins. Okay. Um, it's interesting. They wear a um, sort of, they're sort of completely wrapped up with goggles. Yeah. Um, so like sort of visually, they're not, except in Attack of the Clones in episode two, they are, they show up again and they actually kidnap, um, torture and eventually kill Anakin Skywalker's mother. And the first major act of Anakin going to the dark side is slaughtering a whole village of Tuscan people. And as he says, I slaughtered them like animals, uh, the, the, the women, the children, uh, um, and, and so forth. Um, and the, the, we see a couple of female Tuscans, and they have sort of a stylized Islamic female uh, sort of... Um, Burka-esque uh, face covering. Um, and But interestingly, in the... For, first in the TV show The Mandalorian, um, we see Tuskens show up again. And the Ma- Mandalorian, uh, Din Djarin, the protagonist, he's friendly with them and... Uh, when someone's like, "Oh, I I hear their, the I hear the locals, uh, the, I hear the people on this planet say they're savages," and his response was, "If you ask them, it's their planet," you know, like and, and so and he's like, "There are hard people for a hard hard uh, work for a hard hard world," and sort of. Um, and then they show up again in the book of Boba Fett, which I found a deeply d- disappointing show. As a lifelong Boba Fett fan, I was really bummed out. But during for a while, he lives first as a captive and then as an adopted member of the Tuscan people, and we see a bit more of that. And we see that they sort of move camp to camp with their banthas, um, and it is a commentary on sort of indigenous people, but not one as well sort of done I would argue as the um, as we see in Andor and in um, the Clone Wars animated TV show we see a number of different non-human species on different planets Um, and one is actually uh, definitely designed after also designed after Mongolians women have similar sort of hair horns have a death like robe with like mongolian um, designs the mandalorians themselves are often described as a nomadic warrior people they don't like seem to herd anything or, or they ride on giant mythosaurs whatever we don't know what a mythosaur is so they ride on things 
but they're mostly just like like to fight and murder. There is a history of sort of showing nomadic people as like these warriors, violent people from the Sand People mm-hmm. to the Mandalorians, um, but they are increasingly sort of humanized or. Same people aren't human, but, you know, uh, personized uh, as the years go on where people it's like, yeah, you know, it's it's it's, you know, it's not great. These sort of um, like all creators, George Lucas grew up in a certain uh, environment that had stereotypes that I think were quite common about non-American and European peoples. Right. And he was sort of reacted. He's like, I like Lords of Arabia, so I'm going to put in some mm-hmm. some people who are sort of like that. There is definitely the history of Star Wars of mm-hmm. showing like violent nomadic people, which is again is a really, as you pointed out, interesting contrast to the way the Aldani are are depicted. Yeah, it's quite a departure in Andor then, because um, yeah, that did kind of. St- stand out to me, I think, when I was watching, although I didn't, I couldn't relate it to sort of previous depictions in the Star Wars universe, but I was really struck by this depiction in media of a kind of peaceful, peaceable nomadic group, seemingly, you know, where, but you still do get quite a relative, you know, considering how relatively briefly they appear on screen, you still get quite a rich sense of their kind of culture, the religion, which you discussed, the history, the history of their relationship with the empire, things like that. You get quite a rich backstory, which has a lot of, as we've been talking about, these real world parallels to real nomadic groups, but but without getting into that kind of the warfare, the militarism, which is such a frequent sort of stereotype and trope. So this, so yeah, this was quite refreshing to me, yes. really, as a as a piece of media. Yeah, and, and another uh, instance I realized of sort of resistance of the Donny that they mention was is that when they're sort of telling Cassian about how everyone was deported from the Highlands, they say, "Oh, there are a few like herders who moved back." And are still hurting mm-hmm. and sort of illegally. This is definitely the case today in uh, the People's Republic of China, which has forcibly removed her- herders in Inner Mongolia, mm-hmm. Xinjiang, and Tibet from their native pasture lands. Currently, their explanation is we're preserving the environment. And of course, the in- uh, because, oh, these goats eat too much grass. Yeah. Which, which is silly. You know, because uh, and in Tibet, they say, oh, the yaks eat too much grass. It's like, well, goats and yaks have been around for thousands of years. It's the fact that there's increased farming and mining, uh, climate change and policies that hurt uh, herders, why they have um, deported herders into uh, small settlements just like the Donny and like the Donny some people have illegally returned to their home pastures this tri- tricky finding like contemporary good like up-to-date contemporary research about this because these are all not topics that foreign researchers are allowed to research right. um, a, a close friend of mine uh, Goldana Salamjan 
who is herself a Kazakh from Xinjiang, uh, is writing about these um, ecological migration, deportation from the steppe lands to these prefabricated places yeah. where they're like, we'll give you jobs. It's like, I can't afford to live on what you're paying me and you took all my livestock which were my livelihood and i you know where my parents and my parents parents pasture lands where i grew up is no longer uh, my land and and like the Doni, it's not like mongolians and kazakhs are fighting violently against these i'm sure there's some people who you know i don't know punch a police officer and end up disappearing because of that. But, you know, they respond through protests and and sort of the, or secretly returning home and so forth, or or, uh, clinging to their culture that they can um, in the face of not just deportation, but outlawing their, well, functionally outlawing their language by replacing all their language classes with Chinese as opposed to Mongolian, uh, Uyghur, uh, Kazakh, Tibetan, and so forth. Um, and again, it's sort of, they, they are responding in a constrained way the best that they can. Inter-Mongolian herders and for- former herders are not running around mm-hmm. raiding villages as a response, they're protesting. Yeah, I think that's a really nice way of putting it and of looking at it is these more sort of subtle but realistic and kind of everyday modes of resistance that indigenous peoples sort of have to engage in that Andor kind of reflects. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. That was really interesting. Thank you for teaching me more about both Andor and Mongolian history. Uh, Give me a lot to think about. I'm sort of inspired to do like a whole Nomads in Star Wars series now. So stay tuned. And if you want to come back to talk more about some other pieces of media in the Star Wars universe, I would not be opposed to that. But for now, thank you so much. You're very welcome. And thank you uh, for your invitation.